questions and answers. Two popular authors highlight the debate over the Book of Revelation. Tim LaHaye, the author of the hit series Left Behind, believes that the events of Revelation will occur in the future. Popular radio talk show host Hank Hanegraaff argues in his book The Apocalypse Code that the events of Revelation were largely fulfilled in 70 A.D. with the fall of the Jerusalem Temple. How should we interpret the Book of Revelation? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Now, with the conclusion to a message entitled "The Four Views of Revelation," is our host Pat Zukran. Who exactly are these two? Well, the preterists have a lot of difficulty answering who these two witnesses are. So. Here in passages like this, Hank Hanegraaff and others seem to be allegorizing the text. Once again, Robert Mounts, who writes an outstanding commentary on the Book of Revelation, states this. He says the major problem with the preterist position is that the decisive victory portrayed in the latter chapters of the Apocalypse was never achieved. It is difficult to believe that John envisioned anything less than the complete overthrow of Satan, the final destruction of Israel. And the eternal reign of God. If this is not to be, then either the seer was essentially wrong in the major thrust of his message, or his work was so helplessly ambiguous that its first recipients were all led astray. Mounts and other New Testament scholars believe the preterists' interpretations are not consistent, and utilize allegorical interpretations to make the passages fit their theological view. Second, the preterist position rests on a pre-70 A.D. date of writing. However, the vast majority of New Testament scholars date the writing of the Book of Revelation to be in 95 A.D. at the end of John's life, and the evidence that it was written in 95 A.D. is pretty compelling. So, if John had written Revelation after 70 A.D. The book could not have been a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem. This presents a very significant argument against the preterist position. Now, preterists point to several lines of evidence for pre-70 A.D. date of writing. One of the reasons they state is that John does not mention the fall of the Jerusalem Temple. If he had been writing two decades after the event. It seems strange that he never mentioned this catastrophic event. Second, John does not refer to either Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21, or the fulfillment of this prophecy. Third, in Revelation 11 verse 1, John is told to quote measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. Preterists argue that this indicates. The temple is still standing during the writing of Revelation. So that's a brief summary of the preterist view, particularly the partial preterist view. It's a prominent position held by notable scholars such as R.C. Sproul, Hank Hanegraaff, Kenneth Gentry, and the late David Chilton, who actually later converted to full preterism after publishing his books. So that's a brief summary of the idealist view and the preterist view. Now the third view is called the Historicist view. This view teaches that the Book of Revelation is a symbolic representation that presents the course of history from the apostle's life through the end of the age. So the symbols 
in the apocalypse correspond to events in the history of Western Europe, including various popes, the Protestant Reformation, the French Revolution, and rulers such as Charlemagne. Most interpreters place the events of their day in the latter chapters of Revelation. So, previous generations believed that we were in Revelation 17 or 18, and historicists today believe that we're in Revelation 17 or 18. In other words, each generation thought they were in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, many adherents of this position view chapters 1 and 3 as seven periods in church history. The breaking of the seals in chapters 4 through 7 symbolizes the fall of the Roman Empire. Then the trumpet judgments that occur in chapters 8 through 10 of Revelation represent the invasions of the Roman Empire by the Vandals, the Huns, and the Turks. And among Protestant historicists of the Reformation, the Antichrist in Revelation was believed to be the Pope and the harlot was often pictured as the Catholic Church. And chapters 11 through 13 in Revelation represent the true church in its struggle against Roman Catholicism. The bold judgments in Revelation 14 through 16 represents God's judgments on the Catholic Church, culminating in the future overthrow of Catholicism predicted in chapters 17 through 19. This was a view that became very popular during the Protestant Reformation, and many of the Reformation Church Fathers indeed held to this view. Now, there are several criticisms of this approach. First, this approach allows for a wide variety of interpretations. Adherents to this view have a tendency to interpret the text through the context of the time that they're living. So many saw the climax of the books happening in their generation. And if you study the commentaries by historicists, as you look, each generation thought they were in those final chapters. Dr. John Walvoord, one of the finest Bible scholars on the book of Revelation, points out the lack of agreement among historicists. He states, as many as 50 different interpretations of the book of Revelation, therefore, evolve depending on the time and circumstances of the expositor. Moses Stewart, another very fine Bible scholar, he echoes the same concern in his writings over a century ago. He stated, there though, scarcely any two original and independent expositors have agreed in respect to some points very important in their bearing upon the interpretation of the book. Second, this view focuses mostly on the events of the church in Western Europe and says very little, if anything, about the church in the East. So its narrow scope fails to account for God's activity throughout Asia and the rest of the world. Finally, this view would have little significance for the church of the first century whom John was addressing. It's unlikely they would have been able to interpret Revelation as the historical approach suggests. However, this view was very prominent amongst the Reformation church fathers who held to this view, such as John Wycliffe, John Knox, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, and C.H. Spurgeon, and Matthew Henry. So this was a very popular view during the Protestant Reformation because of its identification of the Pope and the papacy 
with the beasts of Revelation 13. However, since the beginning of the 20th century, it has declined in popularity and in influence. Now, the fourth and final view we're going to cover is the futurist view. This view teaches that the events of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, and the book of Revelation, chapters 4 to the end, will occur in the future. So futurists divide the book of Revelation into three sections. Revelation 119 is the key verse for futurists in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, John is said to write the things which you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. So past, present, and future. What you have seen past, what is now present, and what will take place later. So chapter 1 describes the past, what you have seen. Chapters 2 through 3 describe the present, what is now. And the rest of the book describes the future events, what will take place. So if you take the futurist position, verse 19 is the key verse that gives you the three sections of the book of Revelation. Now, futurists apply what's called a literal approach to interpreting Revelation. Chapters 4 through 19 refer to a period from Daniel 9.27, known as the seven-year tribulation period. It's during this time God's judgment are actually poured out upon mankind as they are revealed in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And so we haven't seen this kind of catastrophe upon the earth in the past or in any time present. So futurists who interpret this book literally say these events have not happened yet. Chapter 13 describes a literal future world empire headed by a political and religious leader represented by two beasts. Chapter 17 pictures a harlot who represents the church in apostasy. Chapter 19 refers to Christ's second coming and the great battle of Armageddon, followed by a literal thousand-year rule of Christ upon the earth in chapter 20 of Revelation. And chapter 21 and 22 are events that follow the thousand-year rule of Christ or the millennial rule of Christ. And that will involve the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and the arrival of the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, which takes permanent residence finally upon the earth. Now, futurists argue that a consistently literal or plain interpretation is to be applied in understanding the book of Revelation. Literal interpretation of the Bible means to explain the original sense or meaning of the Bible according to the normal, customary usage of its language. So this means applying the rules of grammar, staying consistent with the historical framework and the context of writing. So literal interpretation does not discount figurative or symbolic language. Futurists teach that prophecies using symbolic language are also to be normally interpreted according to the laws of language. Scholar J.P. Lang stated, the literalist approach is not one who denies that figurative language, that symbols are used in prophecy, nor does he deny that great spiritual truths are set forth therein. His position is simply that the prophecies are to be normally interpreted according to the received laws of language as any other utterances are interpreted, that which is manifestly figurative being so 
regarded. So in other words, we interpret apocalyptic literature literally unless the context clearly symbolizes otherwise. Charles Ryrie, one of the finest theologians of modern times, writes, Symbols, figures of speech, and types are all interpreted plainly in this method, and they are in no way contrary to literal interpretation. After all, the very existence of any meaning for a figure of speech depends on the reality of the literal meaning in the terms involved. Figures often make the meaning plainer, but it is the literal, normal, or plain meaning that they convey to the reader. So futurists acknowledge the use of figures and symbols. When figurative language is used, one is to look at the context to find the meaning. But figurative language does not justify allegorical interpretation of the entire book. Futurists contend that the literal interpretation of Revelation finds its roots in the ancient church fathers. If you read the earliest church fathers, they interpreted the book of Revelation literally. You can see elements of this teaching. For example, a future thousand-year rule of Christ, a literal thousand-year rule of Christ, are found in the writings of the earliest church fathers. Clement of Rome, writing in 96 AD in his letter, spoke of a literal thousand-year rule of Christ. Justin Martyr, who lived in the early second century, one of the great defenders of the Christian faith, spoke of a literal millennial kingdom. Irenaeus, the spiritual grandson of John, living in the early 2nd century, wrote of a literal future millennial kingdom. Tertullian, one of the great theologians of the early church, spoke of a future thousand-year rule of Christ, and there are several others. So futurists hold that the church fathers taught a literal interpretation of Revelation until we see the great origin coming in the 3rd century AD where he began to introduce allegorical interpretation and later this came very popular with the great Augustine writing in the late 4th and 5th centuries. So literal interpretation of Revelation remained throughout the history of the church but has arisen to prominence after the printing press and after the Protestant Reformation and the rise of the printing press where people were able to read the Bible for themselves in their language, then the futurist interpretation became popular once again. And so this view is widely popular among evangelical Christians today. One of the most popular versions of this futurist teaching is called dispensational theology. It's promoted by schools such as Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, Southern Evangelical Seminary, Biola University, and others. And theologians such as Charles Ryrie, John Walvoord, Dwight Pentecost, uh, popular preachers you see out there, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, J. Vernon McGee, David Jeremiah, and others. Tim LaHaye made this theology very popular in the culture with his end time series of novels. Unfortunately, there have been and continue to be popular preachers who mistakenly apply the futurist approach to connect current events to symbols in Revelation. We call this newspaper theology. 
when often when any man-made or natural disaster or cosmic anomaly occur, they suddenly say, you know, this is the seventh trumpet of Revelation or this is the sixth bowl of Revelation and that Christ's coming is absolutely imminent. Not too long ago, there was a preacher saying uh, there was a comet. I believe its name was Elena, was coming near the earth and will cause electrical shortage and disaster and days of darkness upon the earth and that the rapture was very soon. You know, some have been involved in setting dates of Christ's return. And although their writings and preaching have been very popular, they do not represent a biblical futurist view. Futurists understand what Jesus said when he said, no man knows the time of my return. Now, critics of this view argue that the futurist view renders the book irrelevant to the original readers of the first century. Another criticism is that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and so it's meant to be interpreted allegorically or symbolically rather than literally. Hank Hanegraaff states, Thus, when a biblical writer uses a symbol or an allegory, we do violence to his intentions if we interpret it in a strictly literal manner. One of the key elements in the debate, particularly between preterists and futurists, is the date of writing for Revelation. Preterists have to argue that the book of Revelation was written early 60 AD, while futurists hold to a date of 95 AD at the end of John's life. Now, there are several compelling arguments for a later date that John wrote it at the end of his life in 95 AD. First, Irenaeus, who is the spiritual grandson of John the Apostle. Polycarp is the disciple of John, and Polycarp is the one who discipled Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is the grandson of the Apostle John, and in his work, against heresies, he states that John wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the Emperor Domitian's reign, which ended in 96 AD. So Irenaeus, who is a disciple of Polycarp, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he had a connection with the contemporary Apostle John. Second, the conditions of the seven churches in Revelation, they appear to describe a second generation setting rather than that of the first generation. When you look at the seven churches of Revelation, five of them are in a state of apostasy, all right? And a church like Laodicea is lukewarm. That tends not to be characteristic of a first generation church. If you think of first generation Christians, they tend to be the most zealous and most committed. It's the later generations that often take the faith for granted and false teachings often settle in. For example, the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is charged with abandoning their first love and warned of the Nicolaitan heresy. If John had written Revelation in 65 AD, it would have overlapped with Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Timothy. However, Paul makes no mention of either the loss of the first love of the Ephesians or the threat of the Nicolaitans' dangerous and false teaching. In fact, Ephesus was Paul's headquarters for three years, and Apollos served there along with Aquila and Priscilla. The church of Smyrna did not exist during Paul's ministry, which was about 60 to 64 AD, as recorded by Polycarp, who was 
a disciple of John and the first bishop of the city. Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22 is rebuked for being a very material, wealthy church, but a lukewarm church. However, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul commends this church three times for their faith and faithfulness to Christ. So it would likely take more than three years for the church to decline to the point where we find it in chapter 3 of Revelation, lukewarm, wealthy, but uncommitted to Christ. Also, an earthquake in 61 AD left the city of Laodicea in complete ruins for many years. So it's unlikely that in a ruined condition, John will describe this church as being wealthy or rich. Now, preterists who favor the 70 AD pose the question, why doesn't John mention the fall of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD? Well, futurists respond that John wrote about future events, and the destruction of the temple was 25, 30 years past. He also wrote to a Gentile audience in Asia Minor, which was far removed from Jerusalem. So the temple had been destroyed for nearly three decades, and people pretty much knew about it. John had really no need to mention it. Now, Preterists also point to the fact that the temple is mentioned in chapter 11. Well, Futurists respond saying that although John mentions the temple in Revelation 11, verse 1 and 2, this doesn't mean it exists at the time of writing. Daniel 9, verse 26 through 27, and Ezekiel's temple in chapters 40 through 48, both prophets describe the temple, but the temple had been destroyed when they described a future temple in their writings. Now, what did Jesus mean in Matthew 24, verse 34, when he said, Surely this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, the common futurist response is that Jesus was stating that the future generation about which he was speaking would not pass away once these things had begun. So, in other words, the generation living amid the time of the events, he predicted it is that generation that will not pass away until all is fulfilled. Well, that's a brief overview of the four views of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is a fascinating book, and the debate regarding its interpretation is going to continue. Now, despite our various views, there are some common threads upon which all Christians agree, or at least should agree. All views believe that God is sovereign and in charge of all that occurs in history and its ultimate conclusion. Except for full preterism, you know, which denies the literal second coming of Christ, and some forms of idealism, all believe in the physical second coming of Christ. All views believe in the resurrection from the dead. All believe there will be a future judgment for believers and unbelievers. All believe in an eternal state in which believers will be with God and unbelievers will be separated from Him forever. All agree upon the importance of the study of prophecy and its edification for the body of Christ. Unfortunately, the debate among Christians has often been harsh and hostile. So it's my hope that the debate would continue but in a cordial, respectful manner, which will challenge every believer to accurately study and interpret the Word of God. We all await the return of our Lord, and together with the saints of all ages, we say, 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I hope this brief survey of the four views brought some understanding uh, to you as you interpret Revelation and you listen to the debate that continues to go on amongst Bible scholars that has been going on for centuries. And I hope our time together has better equipped you to understand God's Word and some of the theological discussions and debates that's been going on. I want to thank you for being with us here at Evidence and Answers, and I look forward to being with you again here on Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerberg.